This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstiles! So, welcome to another edition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and brought to you by First Row Collectibles, if you're into nerd culture, if you're into sports memorabilia, if you're into wrestling memorabilia, please visit firstrow.ca. Use promo code THEPODCAST20 to receive 20% off. They got a ton of stuff from all the major sporting leagues to professional wrestling to nerd culture. You name it, they got it. Best thing is they ship worldwide even better. They update daily, so please visit them at firstrow.ca. If you're into video games and books, please visit bossfightbooks.com for great books on classic video games. You'll find titles like Galaga, Mega Man 3, Kingdom Hearts 2 and so many others everything you see on their websites available in paperback and ebook format so please check them out at bossfightbooks.com and if you want to support me directly you can visit my merchandise store at tpublic.com or scroll down on today's device it's embedded right there in the description click on that link takes you right to the merchandise store I got everything from hoodies to t-shirts to travel mugs anything your heart desires it is there but the easiest thing the freest thing the best thing to do to support the show each and every week is Rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms, most specifically Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So this week's guest has wrestled for such promotions as WCW, WWF, and TNA, just to name a few. He is a former WCW World Tag Team Champion, pro wrestler, and drawing artist, Lash LaRue. How in the world are you, Steve? I appreciate you having me, my friend. Oh, I no, I should be appreciating you and thanking you for bestowing your everything onto my show. Because, like I said right there alone, to me, I know people throw around the word legend, but I use the term legend as someone that actually did something in the form of the art that they applied themselves to. If that makes sense. Absolutely, man, and I appreciate you kind of couching it in those terms. Uh, the older I get, the more I recognize and realize. Uh, I think that legendary status probably comes with you having a measure of success combined with a bit of longevity, right? Right. I've been around long enough now and survived the good times and the bad times to such an extent. I got the war stories to tell, and I guess that kind of brings you up that legendary status uh, only because of, of uh, stick to if you will. 
Exactly. You said it best, my friend. I couldn't have said it better. Okay, so, uh, of course, we got to start off. Professional wrestling. How did you get into this wacky world? And what made you want to become a wrestler to begin with? Well, you know, Steve, I see you wearing your Andre 1980 t-shirt, man. And uh, it sounds like you and I are probably from about the same era. And like many children of the 80s, when you had that cultural explosion, that was Hulkamania. And WWF really changing the game when it came to professional wrestling on a large, massive scale. I was a huge Hulkamaniac and a huge wrestling fan growing up. Uh, Because I grew up in the South and I'm from the South, Mm -hmm. you also had combined with that a heavy, heavy dose of Georgia Championship Wrestling that became Mm -hmm. what was NWA really at its hottest and also morphed into WCW and what would become that later on. So all those Turner Station wrestling promotions uh, were constantly on my television along with WWE. And, of course, we'd also get Vern Gagne from the AWA up there when they were syndicated by ESPN. I'd come home from school, it'd be on TV. You know, and then (laughs) on Saturday mornings, you got world-class championship wrestling from Dallas, Texas at the Sportatorium, if you will. (laughs) So... Uh, I fell in love with professional wrestling because of that and just grew up a big wrestling fan. And on into high school, in fact, I got got pretty busy in high school and fell away from it a little bit. Some of that was about eighth grade. I I tried out for a wrestling high school team, walking in, expecting to see some turnbuckles and tights. (laughs) Realized there's a difference between amateur wrestling and professional wrestling, but I, I still fell in love with it. And I played a lot of sports all through high school. Okay. Um, my story, to give you the quick version, just so I'm not eating up a lot of time on some personal stories, but I grew up extremely poor in the South. And okay, uh, gotcha. we lived in some houses. We didn't have running water or electricity. Wow. And my junior and senior year of high school, I was actually homeless. Oh, um, and, and I worked from the time I was nine years old. And mm. the place that I had to stay uh, at night was actually a clothing store. I slept behind the cash register. I was security. And I say that with air quotes for people (laughs) like on the screen there. And I slept in a sleeping bag behind the cash register. They paid me for my hours there, gave me a place to sleep, gave me a vehicle to drive to and from school, to and from church, to and from work, um, and worked my way through high school that way. Meanwhile, simultaneously with that, I was still heavily involved in sports. I won a state championship in amateur wrestling. Mm, Our team got second place in state in amateur wrestling. Um, We went undefeated in football and won a state championship my junior year. And I played football my senior year. So I became so busy throughout my high school years that I fell away from wrestling. It was also the early 90s, you know. And people that are long-time wrestling fans know that with the ebb and flow of professional wrestling, the early 90s were not a great time for professional wrestling if you were a fan. And so I was preoccupied with all of those issues going on in my life. And at the same time, I met my uh, now wife on my 16th birthday. We got engaged when I was 17 and stayed engaged for about four years before we got married. And uh, so I was extremely busy, as you can imagine. Of course. And that's (laughs) following wrestling too much. But then as I graduated high school and uh, started college, Hmm. uh, my life settled down a little bit. Uh, my fiance's parents allowed me to sleep in their basement. They had a basement apartment, sort of, that became yeah. my home now, away from home. Yeah. And we started college, and I took about a semester and a half of college. And I'm an autodidactic person, meaning if I have an interest in something, I read every book I possibly can to educate myself and okay. try to become smarter on it and, and figure out, you know, the what and the what on it. Sure. And 
I went to college, I just thought, man, I want to be successful. And success to my young brain was I should be a lawyer or a doctor if I want some success. <laughs> I chose the medical field, which I had no business doing. And uh, to balance some of those labs and tough, difficult courses I was taking in college, I took a drawing class that was just a figure study class because I've always enjoyed drawing. And uh, what I really enjoyed was cartooning and Uh, illustrations for magazines. So I took a semester off from college having read books and found out that, hey, I don't need a degree to be a professional artist. It's just a matter of me doing cartoons, submitting them to magazines. Mm. Kids at the time, there were these paper publications <laughs> called magazines, right. you know, before all this website explosion <laughs> thing. And you could send cartoons, hard copies through the mail to the editors. It would take them about three months to review these things and get back to you and tell you whether or not your work was good enough to make the cut. And they're going to pay you for your cartoons. Right. So I'm vision to take a semester off of college my freshman year and just see what if I what would happen if I tried my hand at cartooning. Mm-hmm. So I sent off some submissions to a various magazines. Around that same time, because life had slowed down for me a bit and I wasn't quite so compressed, mm-hmm. I fell back in love with wrestling. Ah. WWE had just started WCW Monday Nitro. Perfect. Hulk Hogan had just made his epic heel turn at Bash at oh. the Beach. The NWO was exploding, yep. and now I'm going, what is this on my TV? This promotion that has Hulk Hogan on it, has it has the Macho Man on it. <laughs> it has both those guys in the same promotion as Sting now. That wasn't a thing when I was a kid. Right. And you have, to have these new cool guys, the NWO, coming out. <laughs> and then the undercard was all this unbelievable wrestling I'd never seen before in my life mm-hmm. with guys like Eddie Guerrero and Chavo and Alex Wright and Billy Kidman and Rey Mysterio Jr. and Psychosis and Hooventude and having these great wow. epic cruiserweight-style matches and mid-card matches that the work – ability and the work rate in the ring was just out of this world and i instantly fell back in love with wrestling and during that time uh, people who were fans in that era probably remember that wcw would heavily promote the wcw power plant yes and they had tryouts on almost a monthly basis okay yeah. and i'm watching one night just a mm-hmm. couple of months back into becoming a fan again and i thought to myself man i keep myself in decent shape uh, how cool would it be just to drive to Atlanta and try out. I don't think I'll ever make it. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit smaller guy compared to the guys that I grew up watching. Right. But, you know, if I met Hulk Hogan or shook Ric Flair's hand, man, I got a, I got a story to tell for the rest of my life. I didn't <laughs> exactly. know what to expect. I was like 18 years old, Steve. So Wow. I just barely made the cut being 18 years old. Okay. You had to be at least 5'9 to try out for WCW. I'm sure. a legit 5'11". Okay. Um, you had to be at least 190 pounds. I was about 230 at the time. Perfect. And, uh, you know, I was just a little meaty boy from, you know, a high school football days. You know, little, <laughs> exactly. And went to the open tryout, man, and found out really, really quick because of the way WCW was structured at the time, uh-huh. they really wasn't weren't looking for the next big star. Oh. They were looking for wrestlers, and they were willing to train guys. Right. But they for the next big star from the standpoint of when Goldberg walks through the door, we're going to sign to a contract and bam, we're blown away. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't a casting call. It was a legitimate tryout. It was like going out for the Navy SEALs or something. Oh, man. It was okay. for three days. You walked in to this warehouse that had three wrestling rings in it <laughs> and Sarge, who was the head trainer at the time, would walk in yeah. and this guy was a fire plug of a dude <laughs> that was about 235 and about 5'6". Mm. And uh, 
was just built like a Rubik's cube. You know, he was as wide as he is tall, and he'd walk in, <laughs> drop his bag down, and he'd go grab a bucket. And you're like, what does that mean? You know, there's five gallon buckets, <laughs> old paint buckets, all around the corners. Oh my goodness. And up, flip them over and do squats on them. So that's where those epic squats that you hear about came into play. Yes, five hundred at a time. We started in increments of fifty and worked our way up to five hundred. And uh, when you weren't doing squats, you were running in place. Then you were doing drop downs, and then you were doing burpees, and then you're doing push ups, and then you're doing sit ups, and then you're back to running in place again. And dude, it was that from ten o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the evening with a one hour lunch break, and that was it. Oh man! <laughs> For the first two days. And the third day was a half a day. The Friday was uh, just from 10 a.m. until lunch. But here's the crazy thing is I looked around and, man, I felt like a fish out of water. There's guys there that are former college football players Mm. that weren't quite good enough for the NFL. So they're big jacked up boys. There's guys there that are professional bodybuilders and looking for a way to make money in the offseason because they've got the body. And then you had some guys that were just raw, bone, natural, 6'8", 400 pounds and had tattoos and a mohawk and thought they had the look in WCW while I signed him. Invariably, what would wind up happening was it was more of a shock to them to come in and be expected to do all these calisthenics and push-ups and sit-ups. And I would start seeing these guys falter, and I'd see their legs cramping up. And I'd see Sarge getting in the guy's face when they when they fall out. They go, what's, what's the problem? You can't get cardio in a needle? You know, for all the use heads. Right. And I'm looking around realizing dude by that point i'd been through some adversity in my life mm. i was homeless my junior and senior year of high school mm. you weren't gonna make me quit you may tell me to leave or you may tell me i'm not good enough or you may cut me but i'm not gonna be the guy that gives up right. and when i realized that was the game my attitude changed i mean i was mm. rick flair wooing <laughs> while i was putting my uh my squats That's awesome. i'd go up and, and woo woo <laughs> You know, and uh, that attitude served me well. And those guys were dropping like flies. So after the first day, you had 22 guys at the beginning of the day. Mm -hmm. They ended the first day, 16. The next day, eight guys showed up. At the end of the day, there was maybe six or five left. The third day, me and one other guy are the only two that showed up. And I don't even remember that guy's name or what (laughs) happened to him. Because what they do after that is once you finish half of that morning on the third day, Then they finally take you in the ring. Oh. And then you take one bump okay. just to see if you're athletic enough to learn how to take a bump. True. Then you take front bumps, see if you're athletic enough to do that. You run the ropes, see if you're athletic enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And after just a little bit of that, man, they're not smarting you up to the business or anything. They bring you into the office. And the head trainer or the, the, the head of the power plant at the time was right. Jody Hamilton. Okay. And Cody Hamilton was this Churchillian-looking dude. I mean, he looked like Winston Churchill. He was probably in his 60s at the time, big old thick guy. He was the original back in the day, man. And he was just so intimidating, like a bulldog face. And Mm -hmm. would just lean back, and he'd say – he would tell you straightforward, we're not promising you'll ever have a job. We're not telling you we're going to sign you to a contract. You are not a WCW wrestler just because you made it through this trial. The only thing we're promising you is you showed us enough out there that if you pay us three grand, we'll train you to be a wrestler. Wow. And so I had $1,500 saved up in my savings account. I gave them $1,500. And the rest of it I worked off at the CNN Center because Ted Turner owned that too. There you go. I would move furniture for him in the office and that sort of thing. Right. And I drove back and forth from Alabama to Atlanta, two hours there, two hours Ooh. home. If 
five days a week, 10 hours a day, paying them to train me wow. before I finally got a shot after about, a, you know, 10 months or so. Okay. And it paid off. And that was my foray. That was my foot in the door of professional wrestling. I had never done indies before then. I'd never known a professional wrestler before then. Mm. I'd never been around the business. I was just a fan that went to an open tryout. That's crazy. So was your first match the one on TV? Was that your first WCW yeah. match? Very- Barry Saturn at, uh, at, in Orlando, we used to right. go down there to uh, to Orlando Studios and we would take the Saturday night worldwide ah, shows, okay. some of the syndicated shows, and they would do about three months worth in the course of about five days. Crazy. And so the bug was put in our ear that if you're training at the power plant, you've got enough credibility and uh, enough of a foot in the door that you're not booked down there. But if you'll go down to Orlando on your own dime, and take your gear with you and let the bookers know. And at the time, it was like Terry Taylor and Kevin Sullivan and those guys. And you walk in and you go, hey, I want to introduce myself to you. I'm from the power plant. I've got my gear with me. Uh, if you need any extra guys to do jobs or enhancement work or put somebody over, I would love to do that. And uh, and you just hung around all day wow. at the studios waiting to see if you could get a match. And my first match was Perry Saturn on Worldwide. That About is- four minutes wash. <laughs> that is so crazy to think. And again, it didn't even seem like you were that green during that match. Like, you know what I mean? It seems like you had a lot more matches before that, right? Well, I appreciate you saying that, Steve. One of the things about my mindset, to be honest with you, I, if I'm completely transparent with everyone, I probably could have started working in the wrestling business three months into training at the power plant. Sure. I, I had enough basics down and I had learned enough that already had some independent promoters coming to me oh. and, and say, asking me to work for the on the weekend for them and that sort of thing. And my, my mindset at the time was two things. Number one, no, I, I'm not getting into this to be an indie wrestler. And I'm not knocking indie wrestlers. Sure. I'm just the kind of guy that, in my mind, I shoot for the stars. And my idea is, is that if I fall short, if I don't make it in WCW and this doesn't become a thing for me, then I'm going to make sure I'm good enough that ECW is going to want to take me in a heart, heartbeat uh, or make it a smaller promotion or maybe Japan will be a, an alternative for me. Right. But if I, I was really afraid that if I worked on the independence first and created a lot of bad habits or just gotten typecasted and known as that indie guy that maybe I'm limiting my options in WCW or they're not going to look at me the same way. And I also had the other mindset that I was not going to have a wrestling match until I was confident I could go out there and look like I belong. So even wrestling someone like Perry Saturn, I knew enough to know that I'm going to go out there, keep my mouth shut, do whatever he asked me to do. But I made sure that if they asked me to call that match or if I had to put that match together, I could have led that match. Um, And and I wanted to be at that level before I ever stepped into the ring. No, and that's so good to hear too and and refreshing nowadays. Okay, so how did the whole Cajun character and gimmick come to be? Was that your idea or was that someone else? Or did you have another gimmick in mind that you wanted to portray? No, it was 100% all me. Okay. Um, and the way that it came up, came about was this. My shoot name is Lash LaRue. So I've got that advantage already out the gate. A little bit of name recognition. And right. a lot of people remember the old cowboy Lash LaRue. And mm. even if they don't remember, uh, don't correlate it with me because they think of the old cowboy, but they don't really know that much about him. So it's like the name is familiar. Or I'll get emails. Uh, an example of that is I'll, I'll get an email maybe once every month or so where people go, hey, I just watched Pulp Fiction again. I can't believe they referenced you in the movie. <laughs> no, they referenced me. Spoiler alert. Uh, but I, I love the fact that it's, funny. culturally, 
people know that name. Right. And so it worked my advantage from that standpoint. And then the other issue that I ran into that really started getting my wheels spinning mm. and wanting to go the direction that I went was they put a microphone in front of my face, Steve, when pretty early on, man. And I'm oh, like 18 years old. I'm fresh out of high school. And I was raised by my mom here in Alabama. Okay. My, my dad was Cajun and has those Cajun roots, but I never knew him and I was never around him. Uh. And so I grew up in Alabama mm-hmm. and they put a microphone in front of my face <laughs> and out of high school, I probably sounded a little bit more like this. I mean, I was really country. I had a lot of Jamie Noble in my voice, if you, if you gotcha. know what I mean. Yep. And hey, now I'm gonna give me a microphone. I'm gonna, I probably sounded more like Tommy Rich or some of those old <laughs> Southern wrestlers. Uh-huh. And right away, they go, kid, you got to drop the Southern accent. You can't sound Southern on television. Really? <sighs> yeah. Their words to me were, that Southern is considered ignorant on television. That Southern accent comes across as ignorant. Oh. And they're automatically connected with that. So drop the accent. Okay. And uh, I tried, man. I tried <laughs> and I tried and I tried. And I go, dude, I, I, this is how I've talked my whole life. I right. can't drop the Southern And then as I got to thinking more deeply about it, I'm going, man, you've got guys that make careers. Like the American Dream, Dusty Rose, baby. He's got such a distinctive voice, if you will. Yep. And the thing is, is if you talk to Dusty in person, he's still got a little bit of a list. And he's going to talk a little soft to you. <laughs> and he's going to be, but he turns it up. Rather than thinking he could drop the list completely, right. he just used advantage, turned it up. And, and, and made a character out of it. And then you got people like the Macho Man. The Macho Man was quiet. He was understated. And he would talk to you like this in the back. But his voice wasn't like the Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah. It wasn't the same thing, man. And, and I go, okay, if these guys can kind of learn to work their voice, mm-hmm. then I can use that to my advantage. And I can't drop my southern accent. But you know what? I can enhance it with a Cajun accent. Because I grew up watching this guy in Alabama that was the Cajun chef. His name was Justin Wilson. Okay. And he came on local television. And he would cook and he would tell stories. And he'd go, hey, I guarantee this going to be the best thing you ever put in your mouth. Mm-mm-mm, a little wine for the chicken, a little wine for me. And that's the way that he talked. And so that and the fact that I have that Cajun last name and, and I've always been around the right. culture and knew, knew a lot about the culture. And I thought, man, I'm just going to co-op it, you know. Um, and I played off the double L's. My initials are an LL. So I grew out. They told me, they said, hey, kid, your hair is, you look like, I always had my hair super short when I was in high school, right? Because I played sports. And, and also, and your hair, if you're a young guy and you have curly hair, man, you want to cut that off. Because <laughs> you feel too feminine or something like that. Especially right? back so then, I yeah. I my hair and I cut it. Well, uh, you know. They, they told me pretty quick when I started the power plant, you look like a kid. You, you look oh. way too young. In fact, their words were, Chris Canyon used to tell me, he said, he said dude, you look like the kid from the movie Rudy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I always had kind of that Sean Astin baby face look to me. Yeah. So they throw out some facial hair and grow my hair out. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody had goatees in the 90s, so I didn't want a goatee. Right. And then I started thinking, man – um, I'm going to grow up some pork chop sideburns like Elvis because I'm a big Elvis fan. Grew up Perfect. a huge Elvis fan. Yeah. So I grew up these pork chop sideburns, started growing my hair out. I didn't even realize my hair was so red and so curly until I started growing it. Look at that. And the more I grew it, the redder it got and the curlier it got. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I just went with it, man. And they had, this thing's got a mind of its own. I'll just turn it loose and follow my hair around. 
And so I started wearing my hair that way, and that created a little bit of a character. I looked in the mirror one day, and the artist in me came out, and I started looking at my sideburns, and I'm going, man, they're pretty square. I bet I can shave those into the shape of an L. And so that put my initials on my face. Yep. I had the little goatee mm-hmm. to balance it out, the, the little, uh, little soul patch. And then as I started wrestling, I kind of smartened up pretty quick going, okay, I'm a job guy. I'm an enhancement guy. I'm, they're not they're not sitting down with me and talking to me about what my character development is going to be. That's not how WCW was wired back then. They're just gotcha. booking you in matches. Right. But what I did realize was if I put raging on one side of my tights and Cajun on the other side of my tights, it's going to be hard for veterans like Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan and Larry Zabisco <laughs> and, and Dusty Rhodes to ignore that while they're calling my matches. Right. They're going to call Cajun. And so if you look at my early stuff, they didn't call me the raging Cajun when I came to the ring. They would say Lash LaRue, you know, is what the banner would say. And the, mm-hmm. and the, the cry on at the bottom would just say Lash LaRue. And, and I'd leave it up to the to the guys calling the play-by-play to call me the Raging Cajun because it's all over my tights. And then the next week I'd add something else. Like I'd throw Mardi Gras beads out when i go to the ring. You know, I thought, <laughs> that, well, that's something. If I'm a baby face, I can throw out the Mardi Gras beads or I can walk up to a kid and put it over his neck like a Bret Hart with his sunglasses. Smart, yeah. If people... I can act like I'm going to give it to the people and then take it back away from them, you know? So it was an easy little thing for me to work with on that. And and it added to the character. And I just kept building on it and kept building on it and kept building on it. And when they came to me, they said, okay, where's your hometown, kid? Well, I played off the double L's again. I looked right in the heart of Cajun country, and there's Lafayette, Louisiana. And <laughs> so, so smart. Uh, I played off the double L's. And the funny thing about that is the yeah. first time I did Louisiana in my life was – uh, WCW sent me over there to do an autograph signing okay. right in Lafayette, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And people are coming through, and I'm really playing up the Cajun accent and playing Cajun and doing my deal, man. And which, again, I can't stress enough that if you're from the South, there's not a big divide there. I mean, <laughs> you know, Cajun is just country. You're right. just country. It's just redneck in the swamp instead of redneck in the mountains. That's the difference. <laughs> I'm go. a redneck from the mountains. But it was very easy for me to become a redneck from the swamp. But I went over there and the people just immediately embraced me. And they felt like I was one of their own. They treated me like a hometown hero. I was Mardi Gras, Grand Marshal at the Mardi Gras like three years in a row. And I found out really quick two things, Steve. Mm. Number one, anybody that spent a lot of time in Louisiana, you find out really quick that depending on what parish you are in, everybody has a little bit of a different Cajun dialect anyway. Oh, okay. Everybody sounded a little different. There's no overall just Cajun. And then you get down in downtown New Orleans, man, they sound like they're from Brooklyn. They sound like this road to them. Really? And then the other thing I found out really quick was if they believed in me Uh and they loved the character and they embraced me in Lafayette, Louisiana, I'm not going to have any trouble when they send me to Los Angeles. Exactly. And I'm not going to have any trouble when they send me to Montreal. And I'm not going to have any trouble when when they send me wherever they send me. It's so true. And again, being Canadian myself, I did not notice any difference. I thought the whole time you were actually from Louisiana. Like, you know, you were, you were the Cajun. And because again, being 90s kid myself, what gravitated me towards your character, first off, there was no one like you at that time portraying a gimmick like that, right? And second, I was a huge X-Men fan and my favorite X-Men was Gambit. And you always reminded me of Gambit. I don't know if you ever got that comparison. Well, I'll tell you how far that comparison went, Steve, and okay. this is kind of a fun story, is actually towards the end of WCW, that X-Men movie came out and was a blockbuster, right? right? 
and there was a lot of talk immediately about the sequels, and then there was a lot of talk immediately about spinoffs, and then there were some rumors that in the sequel they were going to have the Gambit character in there. Right. And uh, I got an email out of the blue, okay. brother, from just a fan, and he said the same thing basically that you said. And he goes, look, you're already Cajun. You already have the hair. You're already built like him. You got the accent. Right. You know, we don't want some Hollywood guy trying to fake the accent when that's not from the South and not from Louisiana. So we'd rather have you doing it. He goes, man, do you mind if I just support you? I'm thinking of putting up like a website. And I want to, in my mind, I'm thinking, dude, if you want to put that time into your uh, website, knock yourself out. I mean, you're, right. thank you. I appreciate the fact you think so highly of me and you're not hurting anything and it can only help me. No big deal. And I really didn't give it much of a thought. Okay. And he clicked to the website, dude. And I went on there and this dude had pushed a letter writing campaign and he had Marvel comics. He had the, the producing uh, production companies. He had everybody that was involved in the, in the, uh, in the movie making aspect okay. of those X-Men franchise. Right. He had all their contact information and he was encouraging other people to write a, a letter on behalf of Lash LaRue as Gambit. It that. was really trying to push it into yeah. some, that he would even put sample letters up there. If you're uncomfortable writing a professional letter of recommendation, here's one that you can copy wow. and just sign your... And basically started this whole petition thing. And unfortunately, the timing on that was such, man, that because WCW was just going through that transition and they were being bought, bought out by WWE, right. I couldn't get anybody in WCW to really support me or get behind me on that, and I couldn't get anybody in WWE to really support me and get behind me on that. Oh my god, and that completely sucks. And yeah, and then obviously I want to touch on that quickly too before we wrap up our wrestling talk here. Towards the end, obviously, WWF coming in, swooping in, buying all that. But even before that, you did have another gimmick in MIA where you were Corporal Cajun, right? But what, what, okay, I don't even know where to begin with this because I don't know if this was a rib on you guys, if this was something that you guys came up with, if this was just, hey, let's put all these guys together. But looking back now, you had legends like Chavo, Booker in there, like, you know what I mean? And you got to work with the likes of those. So I assume something good came out of something that was negative? Absolutely. And and look, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of professional wrestling is two things, timing and your ability to make lemons out of lemon, you know, make make lemonade out of lemons, right? Right. That's really what wrestling comes down to because... Oftentimes, you're given opportunities that you don't even realize are opportunities, and you don't see them as opportunities because they're not your idea. Right. And Vince Russo came into WCW. He liked us right out the gate. Okay. And he liked young guys, and he liked the working ability, and he came from a fan's perspective, and he had no problem sitting down with someone like Elash LaRue and saying what you just said. Hey, I dig your gimmick. I dig your character. You've got great ability. But he also sat down with us, and to his credit, gave it to us straight. He sat in a room with me, Booker, Chavo, Hugh Morris. Yeah. We started off with Van Hammer, you might remember. That's right. And, and sat down with all of us. And he said, look, I like all you guys. And I think all you guys are extremely talented. Here's my problem. My problem is we only have so much TV time and we have all this talent. Mm. I can do one or two things. I can either send you at home because I don't have any creative for you. Or I have this idea where I want to put you all together as this uh, group of misfit soldiers And the way that he sold it to us was this. He said, look, every wrestling show does well with a little bit of comic relief, and I want you to be the comic relief of the wrestling program that we're putting on. And if you've ever seen the movie Stripes, you go, bro, go home and watch Stripes. You guys are going to be like Stripes, bro. And so, you know, that's how he sold us on it. And our, our reaction to it was this, was first and foremost, 
can I just turn it into my own thing? Like, as long as we wear camouflage, does it matter how I wear the camouflage? Oh. No, no, I don't care. As long as you guys are wearing camouflage and you okay. look like a military band, a Misfits. Right. And in fact, the more you look like a Misfit, the better. And because uh, you're the Misfits in actions. And, and uh, you know, that and bring out your own character. Make it your own. I said, okay, if I'm Corporal Cajun. Then what I think Corporal Cajun would do is he'd go to the Urban Outfitters supply store and I'd get the colored camo like we wore. Yeah. But I got two different colors and I took it to the wardrobe lady and I said, split them up the middle, do a yellow leg on a red leg and just sew them ah. together. So I got two different legs, nice. uh, colored legs. We would get military patches and put them all over our pants. Mm. Um, I'd get the shirts and I'd cut the shirts. I got a bucket hat because they were really big from Desert Storm, you know, and that was a kind of a carryover. Right. And, and a lot of people came back from that war wearing those bucket hats, and they were yes. kind of popular at the time anyway. Yep. And I cut a hole through the top of it and yes. pulled my hair. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and I still wore my Mardi Gras beads, even mm. though, uh, even though it was a military gimmick. So right. because I was Caucasian, and I took my wrestling boots, and I don't know if you would ever notice this or not, but there's little touches that I try to throw in there. Mm-hmm. And this is where you take something, make it unique, and make it your own. And I took my wrestling boots, and I would only lace them halfway up, okay. and I would turn the tops of them down so they'd look like World War II jump boots. Oh. Yeah, so I just folded the top of nice. my boots down to make them look a little bit more military-based. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Chavo did his own thing. Chavo was Lieutenant Loco, so he put his <laughs> he put a, you know, a bandana on his head and, and acted Loco and, you know, Wore his uh, wore his wife Peter T-shirt with his with his uh, pants and the whole deal, and they put major guns with us. And I would take them early on. That later on, WCW thought it got over enough that they printed them out. But the first few matches we did, where she had the shirt on, the wife Peter shirt on, that said "Bombs Away," uh-huh. I would literally take a sharpie before the show, and I would write "Bombs Away" since I was an artistic guy on the. So it looked like an army stencil. Oh, yes. And we just, we, you know, and I think, I say all that to say this, the success that MIA had and the fact that the title run that I had in WCW was as part of that faction. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it launched Bill DeMott, Hugh Morris, the way that it did with him and him becoming the United States champion and Booker T going from GI bro all the way up to being the heavyweight champion, right. you know? And, and, and we went really, really quick. The only thing that was not a fit in that group was was Van Hammer. Uh, Van Hammer was more of a heat-seeking guy. He's more of a guy that was out for his own self. Gotcha. And he was the kind of guy that when you sat down with him and gave him an idea like that, he'd say, all right, bro, if you want us to do this, then uh, when are you going to start doing T-shirts and merchandise? You go, oh, oh wow. what minute, man, you're putting a cart before the horse. <laughs> and he did not. The chemistry wasn't there with the rest of us. So sure. that's the only time in my career that we ever went – to the riders and said, hey, we would feel more comfortable if maybe Van Hammer was a part of the group and Jerry Toot was part of the group instead, and we called him. Instead of being the wall with Berlin at the time, he just became a wall. That's right. You know, that term. So we played off of that. Right. And once we got all that stuff together, our chemistry, I think, is a, is a testament to our working ability. If you put good workers in a, in a group like that, and they support one another, and they know how to have great matches, and they understand ring psychology mm-hmm. and storytelling, they can get it over. You can get anything over if you really know how to embrace it and you figure out what's the perspective and the angle I need to put on this in order to make it work for me. No, and I totally agree. And to me, some of my 
favorite factions are some like that and even tag teams like you know what i mean where it's the odd couple where you know they were just smashed together because there's nothing for them but they make it work so well that they end up becoming champs and everyone loves them even more and just and it's like that's the stories that i freaking love about wrestling yeah absolutely and i I love those stories from a wrestler standpoint Mm. too because you see guys come into their own and you're going hey just give me the shot and you'll be surprised what you find out. A, a good example of that, I think, is, is my good friend Road Dog. I mean, you know, you, you take Road goes from being, you know, with Rockabilly, and he's the roadie, <laughs> right. and they stick them together because they really don't have anything else for him. And the, the guys say, hey, just get, let, us, let us wrestle with each other instead of against each other every night. We think we can come up with some chemistry. And, dude, they, they become one of the most legendary tag teams of all time. Right. I know. That, uh, that story alone, oh, my God. Okay, so now – towards the end of wcw the writing was on the wall like you said you know it was something was going happening were you there in florida when shane mcmahon walked in the door no 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 what had happened with me was uh this is the odd part of the story okay is maybe three weeks before then um eric bischoff had kind of come back into the to WCW a little bit there. For a while there, they were trying to balance, hey, can maybe we have both these guys leading the company. Exactly. Eric's a bit better leader and administrator and CEO, and maybe have Russo doing the creative and have them checking each other and see if they can work together. Right. And since Eric was kind of in the mix like that, when the rumors started swirling and flying about WCW being bought out, Eric was trying to put together a, a, a group and a bid to be able mm-hmm. to buy that himself. And I think most fans that have done a deep dive on this know that that's pretty much open knowledge. Right. But what they probably don't realize is because that was such an open secret at the time and because so many guys liked the idea of it. I mean, we were used to Eric being at the helm. Sure. And I thought Eric was a great leader, and I thought Eric is the closest thing that WCW ever had to a Vince McMahon. I think so, I, yeah. Think it is, and and unfortunately, we weren't geared to have a Vince McMahon type because you're not going to have Ted Turner come in and suddenly, you know, lead <laughs> the know. whole thing from perspective. <laughs> right, and we we're always going to have our CEO, our president of WCW, was always going to have to answer to the executives at Time Warner. I mean, that was a given. But right. I think Eric did the best job at balancing that game, right? Mm-hmm. Between having to be the executive and the corporate guy and being able to come in and be in the middle of the wrestling business and still understand the wrestling business and do what's best for them. So we were very, very quick to listen to him. And when he started uh, showing up backstage with the impression that everybody had, and I'm not saying that Eric pushed this impression, mm-hmm. I'm just saying it was kind of in the air, right. that this company is going to get sold and it's probably going to be Eric buying the company and Eric's probably going to own this thing. Mm -hmm. So when Eric spoke and and called some shots, you know, it was not unusual for us to listen. And as Vince Russo was kind of working his way out, Eric was working his way back in. um, I remember Eric came to me on a thunder. I I believe it was a thunder was my last match in WCW. Okay. He said, look, during the Russo era kind of felt like Russo Buried some of our older talent. Um, I, I don't know a better way of saying it, but sure, the, you know, he kind of felt like maybe he had misused is probably a better way of saying it. Some of the older talent that was more established, right. guys like Steiner. Mm-hmm. And he came to me and he said, look, we really want to reestablish someone like Rick Steiner is always, he's a monster, man. He's going to go out there and just glom people. Mm-hmm. And we want him to look strong. We don't want people to, the last thing they remember about Rick Steiner is him dancing with three count or whatever it was they had going on. At right. Time, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, or him going back and forth with Tank and doing silly stuff. That's right. 
know, I, I forget what all they had written in the storylines, but they were doing a lot of goofy stuff. Yeah, you're with right. Steiner, just letting Rick Steiner go out and be Rick Steiner, be the dog face gremlin. Mm-hmm. So Eric booked him in a match against me and wanted me to um, go out and just get glommed by him, just get destroyed by him, which was absolutely fun because he came to me at the exact same time. And they, the MIA thing had run its course. They had disbanded the MIA. We were back in regular tights again. Right. I had gotten a little pudgy because I got to wear a T-shirt when I was on TV. I didn't wear <laughs> nothing or you know. And Eric came up to me at the show, at that at that Thunder, and he walked by mm-hmm. and just kind of – and keep in mind, too, Eric was the man. So his main focus week in and week out was the NWO, was the top guys. It was Hogan. It was booking those main event guys. And yeah. your other writers and bookers like Arn Anderson and, and, uh, and Terry Taylor and Kevin Sullivan, and some of those guys were more responsible for the undercard. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have a lot of interaction with Eric by, mm-hmm. at that point. And Eric walked by me just randomly in the locker room and said, hey, cut your hair. It looks goofy. And kept walking. What? And I thought, odd. You know, and I was a little offended at first. And I thought, I don't know how to take that. And to his credit, he came back about a half an hour later. And he pulled me aside. Okay. And first real conversation I had with Eric. And he said, uh, look, I didn't mean that to come off the way that it did if it came off, you know, slightly harsh. <laughs> uh, here's, here's my idea. Okay. It, well, I want to send you home for about four weeks. Have you trim back up, get really lean, cut your hair just to give you a fresh look, come back out, and we'll give you a run with the Cruiserweight title. Oh, And try to build up. And in the meantime, I want to reestablish some of these monsters that kind of got lost in the shuffle under Russo. And so I've got you booked against Steiner tonight. We'll do the stretcher job, put you in the ambulance, and I'll give you a reason to be off TV for four weeks. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And so I said, sure, no problem. I went home, cut my hair, and uh, two weeks later – I'm watching Nitro like every other fan, oh, and I man. see a man walk out live on Nitro. Oh. And, you know, everybody in the wrestling business, their phones are blowing up at that point. You of know, course. everyone's trying to get everybody. Texting wasn't as much of a thing at the time, but mm-hmm. everybody was trying to get in touch with everybody and find out what's going on. And my understanding was is that a lot of the boys that were even in WCW at the time and at that Nitro didn't know what was happening until Shane walked out. He sat in the limo until he walked out and yeah. cut the promo. That is so crazy. And to me, that is, I think, the biggest what if in professional wrestling is what if Eric Bischoff actually bought WCW? What would the landscape of professional wrestling look like today? I think it would be far more balanced. I think it hurt the business overall in a way that the business is just now uh, readjusting yes. itself. The great thing about life in general and the universe is we have this pendulum swing, right? Yes, of course. And sooner or later, when things get out of kilter it can only get so much momentum going in one direction until it has a swing back the other way and i think that's what you're seeing now with companies like AEW and game changer wrestling yep. and even acting some of those guys of um, coming along and they're finding their own footing and they're finding a place for themselves in the wrestling landscape because there's been a void for so long but i think vince monopolizing the business like he did you know wwe kind of buying up all their competition hurt the business overall it certainly hurt the wrestlers they didn't have as many places to go to yep. you didn't have as many options and uh and i think the product suffers as well because if you are a wrestler you're competing every in the height of the monday night wars you knew you had to go out there and perform because i don't want them to outdraw us up there yep. and, and they don't want us to outdraw them and everybody's constantly pushing what's the most creative thing i can come up with the most creative thing i can come up with dude when you don't have that co- that competition when you don't have that dog nipping at your heels it's true you're just not running as fast 
Yeah, they, and that goes for anything. Like even in sports, even in entertainment, like they say, the starving artist is the hungriest artist because they want it more, right? That's yeah, absolutely. So yeah, no, that's a great point. And then obviously you mentioned it monopolized, Vince monopolized everything. You got shuffled in the system. You ended up leaving. You did a little small stint with TNA and all that. But even back then, other than TNA, there was really nothing around on national TV, right? Like, you know what I mean? And TNA was just starting. People didn't want to take that chance yet. But now after 17 years, you're coming out of retirement for GCW. Please tell me you're not having a death match, my friend. No, no, okay. no. Deathmatch is not my style. So okay. okay. That, I'm a wrestler pure through and through. So there ain't going to be any of that stuff going on, man. I'm the kind of person now, I'm old school enough that if something like that's going to happen, there has to be a really good reason for it and a lot of build up to it. I'm not sure. doing it for just for the shock value. Um, no, i tell you what wound up happening was this, and I have to give a lot of credit to my good friend, uh, Conrad Thompson. Okay. You know, I. I banged awesome, around man. the idea for a while, but I was also that kind of person too, Steve, to backtrack just slightly. Sure. I was never going to be the guy that if I retired, I was going to play hokey pokey with the business. Oh. I was put in one foot out, one gotcha. foot in, one foot out. Um, when I decided it was time for me to retire, and a lot of what built up to that was, man, just not places to go. Injuries catching up with me. Sure. Passion losing me. I got lost in the shuffle as you kind of – mentioned slightly there in the developmental up there in WWE when I did not find a developmental contract when I signed over with them I signed over with the understanding I was signing a talent contract and I was expected to be put into TV and when I wasn't you know um, I was man young 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 and that's the other thing people don't realize is I always looked older than I was I'm one of those kind of guys and I always kind of played older and I had to mature really quick at a young age some of what I spoke about earlier and because of that, I came off a lot older than I was. But there's guys that are that really are my contemporaries, and even guys that came after me and was that next generation. Mm-hmm. That I'm either younger than them or the same age. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Edge and Christian and the Hardys and all them, they're older than me, man. Yep. Batista's older than me, for yep. that matter, and he came after me. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm about the same age as Brock Lesnar, about the same age as CM Punk, who was after me, about the same go. age as AJ Styles and those guys. But when I really felt like it was time for me to go and time for me to hang up my boots and time for me to kind of ride off in the sunset, I had an independent match against Bull Buchanan. I knew we'd have a good match. Okay. Uh, I walked up to Bull and I said, dude, this is going to be my last match. And he goes, yeah, sir. And he he, he passed (laughs) on the back. Sure. And uh, and I go, okay. I said, no, but I'm serious. And I know we'll have a good match. Went out, had a wrestling match. Rolled out of the ring and never got back into a ring. Look at that. And I didn't cut a promo about it. I didn't promote it on on uh, on social media. Right. I didn't talk about it in interviews. I didn't do interviews after the fact to mm. explain why I did it. I just rode off into the sunset, dude, and I was a ghost for about 10 years. I didn't have any social media or anything. Look at that. And, uh, I just let fans sort of forget about me, you know, and then mm-hmm. I and I moved on with my life and tried to find a new identity for myself and, sure. and tried to figure out what's going to be next for me personally. And uh, about, I guess it's maybe been three years ago or even four or five years ago now mm-hmm. that Conrad Thompson first approached me, and this was even pre-COVID, he first approached me about possibly doing a podcast where I would somehow – have my art involved in that and draw maybe live or something like that. 
And I, I thought, man, thank you so much for asking, but I don't think that I want to be around the wrestling business because I'm the kind of person I'm not going to halfway do anything. And if sure. I put my foot in, I'm afraid I'll wind up in completely again, and I've kind of left that behind me. So Conrad respectfully, hey, he accepted that, moved on. And uh, about two years after that, he kind of approached the subject again, and then the timing felt right. And I go, you know what, let's try this thing and let's see what happens. Okay. And what took place in the process of that was, as I'm doing these monthly drawing sessions that we call 60-minute time limit draw with Lash LaRue that's on adfreeshows.com, nice. I draw live on an iPad and I have a TV beside me and fans can see what I'm drawing on the screen. Right. So if we're talking about The Undertaker's retirement, I'm drawing The Undertaker. And I've got awesome. an hour to do it. I've got a time limit draw, right? Oh, there you go. Oh, that's so smart. I the Undertaker, and fans are zooming in, and they get to ask me questions. Right. And ask me what it was like to know him and work with him and talk to him and all this kind of stuff. Ah. And I'll have whatever questions they have as I'm drawing, and I'll try to finish the drawing by the time that 60 minutes is up. Right. Uh, and, and then after I'm done, I take that print, and I sell the print to the fans. That helped me see once again how much I loved that interaction with fans. Uh, and I forgot just how generous, how wonderful they are, man, and how good they are to us wrestlers. Um, you know, one of the things that I think wrestlers worry about the most is that fans won't care anymore and that they'll forget about them. Hear it all and the time. fans certainly showed me that they didn't feel that way about me, and I was felt very blessed for that. So Conrad had his uh, Top Guy weekend up in Huntsville, which is not too far from me. Uh, about a month or so ago okay. and asked me to come up there and be a part of that and draw caricatures. And so I went up and I was a part of that and I drew caricatures and I did a, uh, I did a open panel with road dog up there and we nice. talked to the fans and interacted with fans and enjoyed that a lot. They had a show that day as part of the festivities over the weekends that the fans kind of got the book a show and put it together and guys kind of wrestled that out and storylined it out. And they got to do that kind of sitting in a booking room setting with Eric Bischoff and Kevin Sullivan and Jeff Jarrett and these guys that wow. really have been around the business for a long time. Of course. Dick uh, uh, even Dave Crockett was up there. Oh, wow. And so we, uh, they had their match, man. They had a show. It was a great day. We went to leave that day, and I'm walking out of this empty building, and I see a wrestling ring, and I said, man, it's been a long time. i got to at least step in there and see oh, what oh. happens. And went in and maybe many fans have seen these this footage online now, but I took a couple of bumps. Right. Said, man, that felt good. That didn't feel <laughs> bad at all. Felt like riding a bike. Yeah. Took another bump. Felt like riding a bike, man. And I, there was a nice guy there that was a local uh, talent. And I said, uh, man, you mind if I shoot you in and see if I can throw a drop kick? <laughs> Shot him in, threw a drop kick, hit Look it on that. the button. Man, I was feeling the feels again. Yeah. And uh, maybe a couple of weeks later, I was talking to Conrad and. Conrad asked me, you know, about StarCast Weekend and then asked me how serious I would be about making a comeback. And I said, well, if it was right, you know, and, and the, the circumstances were good and, and I thought it made a come, uh, made an impact and it wasn't just me having a match for the sake of having a match. Right. Sure. So, uh, man, I went up there and uh, I, I, I talked to uh, almost immediately right then when we talked to GCW, we, we sent that comeback and... Uh, We'll see where it goes from there. You know, uh, awesome. this has been very much fan driven. I didn't chase it. It seems to have kind of come to me. Right. And so I don't know what to expect that weekend, man, uh, other than I'm going to give everybody all that I've got. 
you know, uh, it's like I cut that promo there and I said, you know, it just kind of feels like I ain't done. I thought that I was, but maybe I ain't done. Uh, maybe I got one more run and I'm a little bit of fun, but I ain't done. I ain't done. I ain't done. We'll That's see awesome what happens. No, I love it. I love it. And again, like you mentioned, because you are still so young, technically, that you could still go in there and provide quality wrestling where it's not like you're just phoning it in, right? So to me, that's perfect. Yeah, I'm 46 years old, and I haven't taken any bumps or beat up my body for probably the last 13 of those years, man. And so and I keep myself in pretty good shape. Awesome. I, I feel as good now physically as I did by the time I retired. And, you know, the, the timing feels right, and wrestling's all about timing. Yes. So we'll see how oh that's awesome to hear okay let's end off the show with your drawing because you've been we talked about your drawing you have a podcast where you draw all this fun stuff like i mentioned i love people who are able to draw because i can't draw a stick man for the life of me so when someone could actually just look at something and translate it from their hand to a piece of paper or to a screen that just blows my mind my friend when okay you sort of said it you took a drawing course you did all that but were you ever interested as a child wanting to draw did you ever pick up like those drawing books on how to draw from the library and stuff remember those back from the 90s that's where it all stems from gotcha that drawing course that i took in uh in college was really nothing more than just a distraction i I didn't get a lot out of that course and i didn't take any other courses beyond that and it really had not much to do with what i do now most of what I do now came from when I was a kid. I think all kids like to draw. Some just keep drawing and some stop. Just like all kids like to sing. Some keep singing and some stop. That's true. Get uh, kids that pursue other passions, whether it's playing the, uh, an instrument or anything like that, man. And I just always like to draw. And so I had friends, uh, you know, that would draw as well. And they would try to impress me with their drawings, and they'd copy things out of Batman comic books or Superman comic books, and they'd right. show them to me. I'm going, well, yeah, that's pretty cool, but uh, Batman's got a square head and not a lot of detail. You didn't really impress me too much. <laughs> and that was the way that I always looked at comic books. I dug the stories, and I liked the overall artwork and the presentation. Right. But when I looked at the characters themselves, they're really outside of their costumes. There wasn't a lot of details in the faces, right? Mm. So. That didn't appeal to me that much. And then suddenly, when I was in middle school, probably about fourth grade, I discovered Mad Magazine. Ah, love it. And I don't know how familiar you are with Mad Magazine, man, but if you grew up in the 80s, Mad Magazine was awesome. And it was very, very heavily caricature-driven because their bread and butter was doing parodies and spoofs of movies and TV shows. And for that to work, you had to recognize the celebrities that they're drawing, right? Exactly. And I didn't even caricature was at the time i just knew that if i open up this magazine oh my gosh you're making fun of top gun and calling it top bomb or something like that (laughs) and you don't tell me that that's uh tom cruise that looks just like tom cruise that that was like black magic to me loved it and so i wanted to do that and i started copying what i saw in mad magazine and i started trying to learn from the tricks and things that they were doing and i always enjoyed art T-shirt designs, I did my own T-shirt designs, my logo for the double L thing when I wrestled. Right. Um, in fact, I've just updated that spoiler alert, so that's going to look different when I do GCW. And, uh, and so I, I do T-shirt designs, logos for business. A lot of people don't know when we did MIA, the MIA logo we had on T-shirts. Mm-hmm. I designed that. I drew that freehand. Wow. And so it's always been a passion of mine, but then when I started wrestling, uh, we would be on the road, man, 300 days out of the year. Right. You know, a different town every night. 
you got to be at the building at noon for a show that doesn't start live until like 7 p.m. So you had a lot of downtime. And I began drawing the guys in the back. And Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, mm. who loved anything that was humorous and funny at somebody else's expense, <laughs> he would sit there and he would just goad me. And he pushed me on. He goes, dude, draw draw Hulk Hogan. <laughs> okay, I draw. Now, draw, draw him really old. Um, okay. And I'm thinking, oh, no. man, you're going to give me a lot of heat. I'm, I'm a 21-year-old Right? Kid. And he goes, draw with a walker and an Austin. Oh, no. In the other room. And he goes, he's not going to care. And he gave me a line that I still use to this day okay. when I'm doing caricatures. And he goes, hey, if anybody complains, you tell them you don't write the news. You just report it. <laughs> so awesome. uh, I would do those cartoons, man, and I would draw the guys in the back. And editors and publishers for the wrestling magazine saw that. And Ross Foreman for WCW magazine saw that. Right. And asked me if I'd be interested in doing cartoons for the magazine. Bill Apter asked me if I'd be interested in doing cartoons for his magazine. Awesome. I stuck with uh, WCW magazine just because, you know, I'm a loyalist at heart, and that was my company, and that was my brand. Right. So I did lashing out cartoons every month in uh, WCW magazine for the entire time that I was at Will until the company was bought. And then when the company was bought out, I started doing it for PWI wow. and for The Wrestler. Yep. And uh, probably did that all that for about a total of 12 years. And it was incredibly forgiving for me and a great learning curve because I was never expected to be a professional artist. Uh, I was a wrestler that could sort of draw. Right. So that that was very forgiving. They're not going to fire me because nobody else is going to be the wrestler that can sort of draw. Exactly. But I took every month and every opportunity that I was drawing to, to try to get a little better and a little better and a little better mm. from the point that Literally, the first cartoon I did for WCW Magazine was Bill Goldberg with his traps so big that they're covering up his ears. And he asks the kid that he signed an autograph for is, what what'd you say your name was? I can't hear you. Oh my my traps are in them. And so uh, I showed it to Bill and I said, dude, do you mind if, I, if I, they publish this in the magazine? He yeah. goes, he looked at it and he looked at me and he goes, bro, you draw me that big, you can write anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> So I never felt the need to ask anybody else's permission right. after that. And so that first cartoon, I literally drew on topping paper, inked it, colored it with color pencils and markers. And now everything I do is pretty much digital if I'm not doing live caricatures. So it's, it's evolved that much for me through the years. Okay, now two things that I want to know about your drawing. What's been the longest piece that's taken you in terms of hours? And what's your favorite that you've done? Oh, man. Uh, that's tough. That's tough. My, my next one that I do that I really enjoy always becomes my favorite. The one okay. that, that takes me that's the fair. longest is probably an unfair question because as I've gotten better through the years, I've ah, gotten faster. Okay. So, my artwork can be better and still be more efficient and be even better now. But one that took me a pretty good long time that I enjoyed a lot is I did a, a Oftentimes, if someone close to me passed away mm-hmm. or if uh, if we had a tragedy in the wrestling world, okay. rather than doing a cartoon, I would do a tribute piece that they would publish instead of my cartoon. Right. And I did a, a portrait of, of Eddie Guerrero mm. after he passed uh, because I thought very highly of Eddie, loved Eddie to death. Right. And it was just straight up pencil portrait mm. with a black background. And it just said, lie, cheat, steal forever. And that took some time because it was just, it was, portraits always take a little bit longer than illustrations or cartoons. Makes sense. So, no. dating it, that sort of thing. Now, how about something that you're not able to draw or that you hate drawing? Is there anything? 
Uh, I, there's nothing that I don't that I'm not able to draw. Um, if I have to sit down and if it's, if it's required for a job or for a special illustration, I can knock out pretty much anything. But probably my least favorite thing to draw is vehicles. Oh, if, yeah. what like reason? Cars, truck, things like that. I try to shy away from that. If someone says I need a caricature of this particular person on yeah. a motorcycle, for instance. Okay. Um, I'm not crazy about doing that, or I'll find a way to draw the implication of a motorcycle. Like maybe he's holding on to the handlebars, but gotcha. you don't see the motorcycle. Because it's such a technical drawing, oh. and uh, and the symmetry has to be so perfect on it, and it's boring to me. There's not a lot of life into a vehicle there. So I, I, I'm just not a big fan of it. I'll do it if I have to, but I'm not a big fan of it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Ash, I could talk another hour with you, but I know time is short here. So please, promote whatever you want to promote. Your socials, projects, floor is all yours, my friend. Hey, well, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for your time, Steve. And hey, my bread and butter is that I'm a caricature artist, man. I do live events. And so I stay as booked now as I did back in the wrestling days, <laughs> brother. Uh, I'm, I'm on the road constantly. So I'm difficult to pin down sometimes because of that. And I'll be on the road sometimes four or five days a week. Uh, next week I have a convention. I'll be, I'll be drawing in Montgomery for an entire week there, and uh, that'll be digital caricatures. So I do traditional caricatures and I do digital caricatures. And to be clear to our audience, there, it's similar to when you go to a theme park or you know uh, Six Flags, a fair, a festival, and you see the artist that does the really quick exaggerated portrait. That's me. I draw one face about every five minutes, four minutes, and uh, can knock them out really quick, which is the key when you're doing. You know, corporate events, mm-hmm. or you're doing wedding receptions that I do a lot of, or I do college campuses, uh, any event where you're going to have a lot of people there, it does really, really, really well. And so people can book me out that way by contacting me through my email, lashwcw at aol.com, or they can see some of my work on Twitter, at lashcandraw. That's got a little double entendre to it. <laughs> but uh, I do a I do a traditional version of that, which is I just bring paper and I'm drawing directly on paper, black and white. Those are 12 by 14 when I'm done with them, 12 by 16 when I'm done with them. And then I have uh, a digital version of that I do where my iPad plugs into a flat screen television. People can see what I'm drawing. When we print them out, we print them out four by six on a selfie printer and make a lanyard out of it and a name tag. And your caricature is a full color digital illustration with your name on it. That's awesome. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, or as it's now known, X, at Finger Styles, or the podcast on X, the podcast DAP. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast DAP at gmail.com. Please rewind to the top of the show. Support those fine sponsors because if it helps them out, most definitely helps me out. And if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast and you like what you heard, please go back and listen to other wrestlers that have also been in WCW, like... PCO, Nikita Koloff, and Jeff Jarrett, to name just a few. All right, Lash, one last question before I let you go, my friend. I got to know this. So, since we're both kids from the 90s or 80s, and you're a cartoonist, what are some of your favorite cartoons growing up as a kid? Oh, Thundercats. Thank you. Me too. Okay, Thundercats, Transformers, yep. Yeah, and Thundercats, to me, for some reason, was it Panthro, was that his name? Yes. Panthro was like the Mr. T of the Thundercats to me when I was a kid. So uh, I don't know why. I just grabbed it. What Mr. T was to the A-Team, that's what Panthro was to the Thundercats. So he was my favorite, like, Thundercat character. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, for me, you named pretty much what I was into. Same thing. It was Thundercats. Low-key understated cartoon from the 80s. Mm. 
Uh, what if you'll get this one? Let's go. You ready for this? Go for Thundar the Barbarian. Thundar the Barbarian. I've heard of the Barbarian. Is this the same one? Had it had like a catchy theme song at the beginning? No, it, it was uh, it was Thundar the Barbarian. And like a lot of those He-Man type cartoons then, you had Thundar, yeah. who was like the big sportsmith and the whole medieval thing. You had the sorceress who came with him and was kind of his sidekick and okay. a chick. And then you had Ukla the Mock, which was like this alien hybrid Chewbacca-looking oh, wow. Panthro type. He was the muscle of the group. Oh, no, I've never heard this. Now I'm going to have to Google it as soon as we get off. Look it up, man. You'll love it. Oh, that's awesome. On that note, he's Lash. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace.